So today we're all recording from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We would like to pay our respect to Elders past and present. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. I had a beautiful experience. You know, I was able to go back home on country and was staying at my uncle's house and actually have the opportunity to weave on country for the first time. Really special. Yeah, I just think it brings you into the present. So you're focusing on what's in your hands and what you're doing and what you're creating as opposed to what's going on around you. Nini Nagarthal, Samantha Jetta. I'm a Yorta Winya. My name is Samantha Jetta. I'm a Yorta woman, a wife, mother of two, an education support worker, and owner of Wanala Weaving. This episode discusses mental health, anxiety, and depression. This content may be distressing for some listeners. We really appreciate your time and are excited to share your story because it is a really, really great one and share it with lots more people too. <laughs> Could you start, I guess, at the start and tell us a bit about how you grew up and what life was like for you early days? Growing up, I moved around a lot. I think I went to 13 different primary schools from memory, if I can even remember them all, for a period of time, so a single mum. But then it was sort of periods of time where mum would try and keep us in the same primary school or school for as long as she can. So we were going to school in Flemington and living out in Werribee. So mum was driving us to school every day, then going off to work in East Brunswick. And then in high school, I relocated out to the western suburbs and we spent probably five years living out there. And so I did year seven through to year 10 at this one high school. And then we relocated to Alwood and I transitioned schools and absolutely hated it. You know, I went from a school from 600 and something plus students to only 150 students so that was a real struggle for me and then after that year we moved to Heidelberg West and so mum's still there now and so I made the effort to re-engage in my old school in the western suburbs and was going yeah catching two trains two buses every day to get to school and back again so I'm doing year 12. That's massive. Is that a decision you made on your own back to commit to your education or? Yeah, I just thought I was going to have a better outcome. I was back in the old school. I really enjoyed it there and I had lots of support networks. So friends would let me stay over their houses during the school week, a couple of weeks, nights a week. So I didn't have to do the travel every day and things like that. So I was able to commit then fully to the year 12. I feel like that's a pretty amazing story in itself. It's a lot of schools and a lot of moving and it sounds like you had a lot of agency over what you felt like was important to you. Yeah, in the end, like it was definitely up to my decision and mum supported me on that one, but she sort of made it really clear that she didn't have the capacity to drive me all that way every day. So if I wanted to do it, then you know, I had to get myself there. So I was committed to that. Do you have siblings as well? The youngest of four, so... Yes, I was the last one left at school, so the others had moved on to... I had one sister living at home still, and she was working, mum was working um, in the opposite direction, so I've lived down sort of the coast, sort of Frankston, Carrum, Bomb Beach, those sort of areas, and yeah, Alwood, West Heidelberg, moved to Shepparton for a period of time. I think, you know, mum struggled with you know, being a single mum with four kids and, um, yeah, finances were difficult at times. So there was time and going into public housing, you sort of get moved around a little bit in emergency housing type scenarios and things like that. And can you tell us a little bit about what after school was like for you, Sam, and how you found your way into your career? 
Um, so straight after school, I was working in a pokey venue, a local pokey venue, doing night shifts and working in the bistro during the day and in the pokey room in the afternoons and evenings. And then my sister came across AFL Sports Ready and the Indigenous traineeship models that they had offered. And she applied for a traineeship with Commonwealth Bank to start with. And um, I had just moved in with Neville. So he was living in Oakley, so I was still working in Preston and I didn't have my licence, so it made it difficult. So, yeah, so we I applied for one of their traineeships. They had one at a sort of local bank toward, in Oakley with ANZ. So I started doing that traineeship and then um, three to six months into that traineeship, my brother passed away unexpectedly and so that was a lot of a traumatic experience for the family and... Um, a lot of the responsibility, I guess, fell onto me as helping support organise the funeral. It was a complex passing away, so there was coroner courts involved and police investigations and things like that. So, yeah, that took up a lot of my time. So for, you know, three, four months after he'd passed away, I was trying to work at the bank and I'd get calls from various people and asking various questions about the coroner's case and stuff like that. So I decided to step away from the bank for a few months and then went back to just gaming because it was just pretty easy work to do, do it overnight, didn't have to think too much. Um, and then I was re-approached by AFL Sports Ready and um, I just sort of said, no, I don't think that the bank was going to be the right environment for me to go into. So they offered me a traineeship within their organisation. So it was um, just an administration with their Indigenous Employment Program area. I participated in my um, traineeship and I was 20 weeks pregnant by the time I started that at AFL Sports Ready. So it was, again, changing my qualification and um, working full-time. Um, and then, yeah, so I got to see how they worked and operated with their young people that they had come in and mentoring and the field officers and stuff like that. And I successfully completed my qualification component of the traineeship within 12 weeks, I think it was. It was supposed to be you know, a 12-month traineeship and it was really important for me before stepping away on maternity leave to finish the qual, so... And finish that and finish up working there. And again, I met some really great, amazing women during that time, and they were mentors and still are to this day. So then, yeah, the education space was really an interest of mine. Then I had a period of time off uh, work after having Nalani, and then started working in um, traineeship coordination roles and peer support roles. And um, through that, I wanted to upskill, so I was approached my workplace and said that I wanted to do a certificate in education support to support the trainees that I was supporting. And then, yeah, there's two lovely ladies that are Fiona and Robin who work at the RMIT Indigenous Program Unit and they deliver the course and they're really amazing and flexible with me to get it done. And so then did that qual and, yeah, didn't use it for a period of time. And then once we got back from the hub, I started doing CRT work um, in a, as an education support worker and mostly my placements were at a local autism school and loved it. Every day was different. Going into the school environment, the schedule was very much the same every day but the kids brought something different every day and that was really 
what I enjoyed. So at the moment, yeah, transitioning into an education support role at a local primary school, which I'm looking forward to. Is that something you thought you would always go into coming out of school? It seems like it was just kind of one thing after another. This opportunity came and you moved sideways and sideways again, mentoring people. Is that something you foresaw for yourself, becoming you know a support person, a mentor and a teacher in a school? It was a natural progression, I think, that how I fell into it. And, you know, just through various opportunities, found out what I liked and was able to transition into that area. Can you tell us a little bit about what AFL Sports Ready is for people who might not know? Yep. So AFL Sports Ready started in, I think, 95 through Kevin Sheedy. And so he established it for the uh, AFL players so that they could leave the game with qualifications and work experience and don't know what year exactly, but then they opened it up to the public and then developed the Indigenous Employment program area as well so they still do next goal program for the players to engage in but now they offer a huge range of traineeships for non-AFL players so just for the general public to engage in in various areas so yeah I'm a very passionate about their work they do. Excellent. It seems like one of those things where sport can be like the foundation for so many other things to happen in the world and we like lean on sport as our is that one thing that unifies us in your in your drive or your passion or their their aims and objectives? Yeah. Is that how it felt? Yeah, working for so. them. Yeah, I think it is like that. Um, you know, people see the AFL branding and sparks interest, so they have a look at it and it opens them to different opportunities. And again, they just they have such a wide variety of traineeships that they offer from, you know, working in retail spaces in the footy clubs or IT spaces in the footy clubs. They do IT in schools. They do um, PE assistant traineeships and stuff like that. So I think it's a good opportunity for people who probably haven't had the best opportunity to see it in like getting the enter schools and stuff like that and miss out so that they can engage in that one. You are listening to the Significant Others podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about how you and Nev met? So Neville and I randomly met 12 years ago. I was at work and my mum messaged me and she said, do you want to go to Moomba? And um, I didn't finish work until 10.30, so got home, went in, and everything was closed. We weren't expecting anything to be closed so early on a Saturday night and... um, my sister had been in a nightclub and so I messaged her and met her there instead and I think mum just went home and yeah, I met Neville randomly, didn't know who he was. We started talking and exchanged numbers and that was it. And then the next day I got a message from him asking me to meet him up for, for coffee and I agreed to do that on the Monday in that it was the public holiday and then he messaged me, he's like, oh, can you come down to St Kilda and meet me and... I was, I was 19, I didn't have my licence, I got my licence really late. And so I was on the bus on the way down, so there was a bus that ran from West Heidelberg to St Kilda and on the bus and my girlfriend messaged me and she's like, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, I'm supposed to go meet this guy for coffee in St Kilda, I'm on the bus, I'm near your house, how's about we just go have lunch instead? <laughs> and she's like, no, you should go, like go have coffee and then we'll come back here and have dinner and so yeah we met and had coffee I met him at the footy club so that's when it he's like oh yeah I play footy and okay you made you meet him for your first date at the footy club yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah because right. Nev had just moved over so Nev um 
had moved over from Western Australia in the November, so that was sort of the March. So he didn't know his way around very well. So off we went walking down um, Fitzroy Street, found a cafe, had coffee and we're just chatting the whole time and realised it had been like two hours and, you know, the time went so quickly and he's constantly looking at his phone and I'm like, oh, is everything okay? And he's like... My teammate's been sitting in the car for me this whole time waiting for a lift home. <laughs> he, his, his teammate didn't have his licence and they were living together with a host family. So, yeah, I think I got off the wrong foot with the teammate. <laughs> but obviously the right foot with Nev. Yeah. <laughs> and you have two beautiful children together. Did you want to tell us a little bit about them? Yeah, so we've got Nalani who's nine going on ten. So um, we had her when Nev was 21 and I was 22. And, yeah, she's... She's challenging at times, <laughs> but, you know, as most girls are, she's very stubborn and defiant. And We love that in a girl. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, she's very much into reading, arts and crafts and things like that and Lego. And then we've got a six-year-old son, Kyrie, and, yeah, he's such a mummy's boy, but he is very sports-orientated and loves sports, loves getting around the footy club and around the boys. But he doesn't get around Dad, does he? No. So Kyrie has never worn Neville's footy jumper. He wears everyone else's. <laughs> For a period of time, Bernie Vince was his favourite player. So we've named our dog Bernie after Bernie oh. Vince. After Bernie had retired, Kyrie was still wearing Bernie's footy jumper for a while. And now he's moved on to Cozzy's footy jumper. So like, Cozzy come and lived with us for a period of time. So now he's got his footy jumper on. and on. That's because I pick it? Yeah. I guess, like, obviously, from the very beginning, football's been a part of your relationship. If he's yeah. going to meet you at the club and you know, introduce you at his workplace, how has that impacted your relationship from the beginning? I'm probably the worst person. I pay no attention at, at footy. There's been times where Nev's been, like, knocked down unconscious on the ground. I didn't even notice. And um, I was at a game and then someone's like, oh, where's Nev? And then I looked at my phone. I had... 10 missed calls, voicemails from the club doctor. They're like, and so they're like, can you come down? We called an ambulance and, um, you know, get down. And Nev's on a spinal board in neck brace. Oh, gosh. For the two kids, and I'm trying to keep it together. And it's just like, yeah, I just don't pay attention at, at all. <laughs> you really missed something that day yeah. of <laughs> the game. Yeah, I miss a lot of things. But, but yeah, the kids, they pay attention. Nalani, since the hub, she sits there and she, she She's always shown that she's not interested in footy, but I think she really is interested. Um, she will sit there and write notes for Neville um, <laughs> and tips of what he's done wrong, what he's done, what he can do better and what she liked that he did. And then at the end of the game, she'll send it to him. So she'll sit there with her iPad, type them out and then send them to him. Oh, my god! So yeah, she's his biggest critic. It must be pretty, um, like, honest feedback too from a nine-year-old. Yep. Yeah. I would love like, to see a page of that. I feel like maybe you're going to have to write a book one day and yeah. it's just all of her notes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's, she types them out and sends them and, like, she always sends it like with, I love you. Oh. So she sends it off nicely. I think I was saying to Hester um, a few years ago, Ned was doing a billboard. It was an electronic billboard in Richmond for the Reach Foundation. So it had Nev and Max Gorn on it. Nev spotted it and it was sort of just changed. And so we sort of he pulled over the car and was waiting for it to change again. And um, Nalani's like, 
I seen it, Dad. Like, what What do you want to show us? And he's like, look, I'm on the billboard. She's like, why were you on the billboard? And I said, oh, well, Dad's famous, you know, he plays footy. And her response is like, Dad's not famous, Max Gorn's famous. <laughs> and, um, you know, we're still waiting for it to change. And she was getting frustrated because it was taking so long. And she's like, Dad, if you just want, if you want to see yourself, just look in the mirror, it's easier. <laughs> like, yeah, just ruins his ego. We shared a hub for a little bit. They were some of the older kids there. So that's probably an experience that they'll remember too. Can you tell us a little bit about what it was like for you and also what it was like for you as a mum bringing your kids up? Um, yeah, I've actually just had the conversation with the kids on the way to school today and I asked them, you know, and got their feedback on the hub and they said there was some good things about it. They liked being able to play with other kids and make friends and they loved the pool. That was fun, they said. But um, they really struggled with the rules, I think. You know, um, earlier on, you know, they weren't allowed to go to playgrounds before we left the hub and catch up with friends and things like that or have friends over. So they really struggled with that period of time and... Yeah, the kids really struggled with not being able to leave the hub and do things outside or go to the beach and things like that or playgrounds. So, yeah, they really struggled with that. But I think kids are really resilient, so they moved on pretty quickly with it. Yeah, they found their coping mechanisms through that. Yeah, for me, I really struggled with the hub. It was a difficult decision to make to go into the hub because of my underlying anxiety and um, my perceived safety zone of home. So it was... A huge thing to commit to leaving that space and not knowing how I'd respond or react. But I think it was the right decision. Yeah, I probably wouldn't have been able to cope at home for that period of time on my own. Sort of as things progressed, there were sort of incidences where I started to feel unsafe in the hub and my anxiety started to become really um, apparent and, you know, I wasn't leaving my room and stuff like that. So, yeah, I really struggled in that environment. Do you want to take us back a bit and talk through your journey of mental health? I hadn't, wouldn't identify with having an anxiety or mental health issues up until 2016. There was an incident where we had planned as a family to go over to Western Australia because Neville's grandmother had been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and um, was supposed to leave the Monday. And then the... I think it was the Friday night, Neville got a call in the middle of the night saying, like, things aren't looking good, are you able to come home early? So we got Nev on the next flight, um, so he went straight back and the kids and I were going to remain until our flight on the Monday. So we flew out on the Monday and then we had initially planned to spend, I think, four days up in Caratha visiting Neville's cousin and then spending the remainder of our time with his grandmother. So we... It was going to be too expensive to cancel our flights and lose that. So we did our four days in Caratha, come back, and on the drive from the airport to Neville's grandma's house, so it's a two-hour drive, we got a phone call saying that she'd passed away. So, yeah, so we went and spent time with the family at her home and things like that. So fortunately, Nev got to spend, you know, those days before with her. And then while we were at Nev's nan's place... After she'd passed away, I got a phone call from uh, the Austin Hospital here in Melbourne saying that my mum's been brought in and they've had to put her on life support in intensive care. So that was a really difficult time because culturally, you know, you're supposed to be spending time doing the morning and sorry business with family and stuff like that. So it was really a tough time for Neville and I because it's do we return back to Melbourne as a family or do two of us go, two of us stay? 
ultimately Nev decided to come back to Melbourne with me. Yeah, mum spent three weeks on life support and that was really difficult in that time. And then, um, yeah, so when she came, then she spent sort of an extra sort of, I was all up, she was about there a month. So there was a couple of weeks afterwards that so she was still in hospital and something that I learned through the process is that when people are in, you know, on life support or in a comatose state, they start becoming delusional afterwards for a period of time. So there's a temporary delusional period. So I really struggled with that. So there was things that my mum was saying that my rational brain knew that wasn't true. Then I was finding like it was probably taking over for me where I was trying to like, you know, investigate if it's true or not or is there a possibility. And the things that she was saying was just like really outlandish and stuff like that. So that was really difficult. And, and again, you know, my sisters, one doesn't drive and they both live really far. So Neville and I are just down the road from mum and the hospital's in between her house and our house. So a lot of it went on Neville and I. So we're sort of going up and back to the hospital, juggling kids and stuff like that. So, yeah, and then, you know, things sort of went back to normal. We went back to WA for the funeral. Mum's health improved. She went home and things like that and yeah I didn't realise like at the time like once things all settled down and went back to normal I'd start driving places and start getting really like unwell where I'd have to pull over and find the nearest toilet and stuff like that and get out of the car and there's times where I was driving the kids to the car and you know I couldn't get back in the car and and they were much younger then so I'd have to call Nev, who fortunately in a lot of the instances had left home after me. So he was able to grab the kids and then take them on. And then I'd sort of slowly go home or slowly make it to where I was going. And yeah, so a lot of that was a really unrecognised anxiety. And it got to the point where we just moved houses. We brought our house and moved in and Nalani was about to start prep. So we had a lot of impacting things. It got to the point where... I, again I didn't realise what was going on or what it was it got to the point where I couldn't leave the house like I couldn't even go out the front door to check the letterbox but I could go out the back and sit on the back deck and that was really difficult for a period of time and I could go somewhere if Nev was driving but yeah there was a time where I drove myself to work and, you know got to work and ended up in an overwhelming panic attack and and get in the car and so like my boss had to drive me to the footy club so I could park my car at the footy club and then never drive me home or my mum could make me to drive me home and yeah and then there was another time there I had to go two suburbs over to sign some paperwork for the house and I was driving and all of a sudden I got to this point in the road there was a little bit of traffic and I just got overwhelmed with panic that I had to pull over to the side of the road and pulled over threw up on the side of the road and then I thought I should be able to get like I was talking to myself I'm like I should be able to just get back in the car get through these traffic lights and turn around and go home like I don't have to go to this appointment no I couldn't get myself back in the car so I walked five k's home in the rain just yeah just this complete overwhelming feeling of I couldn't do it and get back in the car and drive so in the very beginning it was very much every day like when I couldn't leave the house that was very much every day I couldn't go to the supermarket and things like that sometimes I would go to the supermarket and you know I just felt like I was a zombie like I wasn't present and just sort of wander around do the shop you know go to the checkout and then as soon as there's a line or it took 
what I perceived was too long to get through the checkout and my anxiety would peak and mm. things like that. So then thank God for online shopping. That was become avoidable and yeah, even like I couldn't drive Nalani to school or anything like that. But now it's sort of at a point where I am managing it. I know my triggers. So I have this perceived safety zone and perceived safe areas where I feel comfortable driving. I could do that all day, every day, so that's no issue with, so like, you know, the school run, the supermarket, to work and home and things like that. I can go to the footy club. Um, <laughs> that's handy. Yeah. How did you get to that point of managing it? You know, I was really fortunate with the footy club that they engaged a great psychologist for me. So I spent maybe 18 months working with her with strategies and stuff like that and certainly medication has helped me get through as well so yeah and just those strategies with the psychologists that she used breathing techniques and stuff like that and the kids have now recognized the signs of when I'm starting to feel anxious in the car and they know to talk me through it and stuff like that particularly Nalani um, earlier on she had sort of because Kyrie was a bit younger and he hasn't probably seen a lot of the panic attacks on me at my worst whereas Nalani has and People don't realise, I think, sometimes how debilitating it can be. We've spoken about it a bit because I've also had anxiety driving in the past. And I think there can be sometimes um, this opinion that, oh, you know, just get in the car and you'll be fine. And and people don't realise that sometimes getting in the car itself is difficult. Is there anything that you wish more people understood about anxiety? No, but I'm really open on my social media about my anxiety issues and stuff like that because of the stigma that it's attached to it and the negative that comes with it. So I think it's really important to be transparent and honest about what's going on for me and just sometimes I put in the strategies and through that I've had a few people sort of, you know, message me on Instagram and, you know, say thanks for that. You know, I've been feeling the same or... Asking, you know, how do you manage things and stuff like that. And again, I'm no doctor or expert on it, but, you know, I can provide salute, like ideas or things that have worked for me. Or Yeah, your lived experience. Yeah, my lived experience and some apps that I use that I just recommend and for them to try. I think that's so great, Sam, because you're right, like there is a big stigma attached and we probably don't talk about it as much as we could. So it's really special to have people like you doing that work and and helping other people out too. Because it is a vulnerable position to put yourself in as well, to share something so raw and you do it in such a like honest and open way and just a really authentic way that this is just kind of part of who I am and part of my life and how I live my life. So I can totally see why people would feel comfortable reaching out to you and being like, I can relate to this and I feel the same way and thank you for doing that and making me feel more confident in in myself or understand my own situation more as well. I am, um, and I do love that about you, Sam. I think you are so so honest and and so yourself, and everybody can really benefit from that. And on that, I do know that you have some really excellent stories about being the partner of a footballer, and and maybe even going to the Brownlow. Do you think you could share some of those for us? As I mentioned, like I hate the Brownlow. <laughs> Every time Neville's come on, we've had really last minute invitations, so we found out. I think we just finished the semi-final against her long 
And then staff members like, oh, so you're going to Brownlow. And so Ned was pretty organised. He had a suit that he could wear. He just Probably the same one yeah. from the previous year. <laughs> yeah. So he's had 12 months to prepare. <laughs> yeah, except for this time he wanted a bow tie. So I was like, okay, just a bow tie, we'll deal with that. And then, um, yeah, so I got online straight away and, yeah, just brought a jumpsuit offline, some off an online store and it arrived in time, thankfully. And then organised hair and makeup, and then I was like, I was feeling anxious anyway um, about it because obviously it's a big thing to go and can be a bit outside of the comfort zone. Yeah, very yeah. much outside the comfort yeah. zone. I'm an introvert, so I don't like the attention on me. So yeah, I was dreading it and things like that. And I think you know the first time we went because you know we were at this high stress point in our lives that it was just a whirlwind. Like just get it done, get out. Like we didn't go to the after party or anything like that. It was just straight in, straight out and go home. And Neville's parents were over because it was final season. So the kids were with them as well. And um, Neville's dad was watching TV and Neville's running around the house. So I'm all dressed, ready, taking selfies out the back. And I'm like, hurry up, like we've got to leave soon. And whereas he's normally the one like, we've got to leave and be on time and things and Especially for things for him, not for everyone else. <laughs> Neville's late for everything, but not for himself. Um, yeah, the kids hate it when it's Neville's day to take him to school. They're guaranteed to be late. Yeah, so he was running around the house, throwing everything out, looking and clothes and stuff like that. I'm like, what are you looking for? And he's like, I can't find my bow tie. And then his mum starts looking and I'm start looking and then I'm messaging a f- girlfriend who's at the Brownlows there. I'm like can you run into, like, one of the shops there and try and find, like, a tie or a bow tie? Like, we lost Neville's bow tie. We're meant to be leaving. And, oh, it's just a drama. And then um, all of a sudden Neville's dad's like, what are you looking for? And he's like, my, my bow tie. And his dad was holding it the whole time. <laughs> and in this, like, chaos of looking for this tie, I started getting really anxious. So I took off the jumpsuit because I'm like, I can't sit in in the car feeling like this I feel like I'm gonna throw up I want to throw up on myself so I put on track suits and baggy t-shirt we drove into Crown and like we're running late the AFL had rung Neville they're like where are you like you know the doors are closing soon you need to be here and then they had actually told him that he won the award it's like just to make sure he was on his way yeah you 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 need to be (laughs) here (laughs) yeah it's like you can't just sneak in later like you need to be here by this time so yeah we end up parking in the multi-deck car park and I was there trying to get dressed in my jumpsuit so like got half undressed in the car and then got out the rest to pull the rest of the jumpsuit off and this guy walking past and just really awkward and then you know, we sort of started like walking really fast out of the car park and then, yeah, finally there's nobody on the red carpet except for I think poor Ben. He had to stay out to do an interview. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, there was just like him and someone else out there. The camera crew had gone. All the crowds were gone. It was the best. Was that great? Yeah. That sounds like the That's ideal the trick, situation. everyone. Yeah. Turn up two hours late. No. <laughs> yeah, just rock up really late. I love that, Sam. I think like when people envisage their brown, though, they probably don't think about us wrapping up in tracksuits and getting changed in the car park. So yeah, I don't think that would be everybody's first like imagination of it. But, but it happens. Uh, yeah, it's the reality of it. A bit of awkward <laughs> when you're in the car park. God, I hate those things. Yeah. You're listening to the Significant Others podcast. 
Uh, we spoke a little bit, Tam, about the hub before, but I know that you started something quite special in the hub and that is your weaving business. Can you tell us a little bit about how that happened and a little bit about it in general? Yeah, so in the hub, like I mentioned, I really struggle with my mental health and um, I come across a couple of Aboriginal businesses run by women. So one of them was Earth Ginder, which I sent some beautiful products to. I was just going to say that Sam is the kind of person that can be having a hard time herself and still look after other people. So I did receive a beautiful delivery from you while in the hub. Yeah, Earth Ginger makes beautiful essential oils and things of that nature and body scrubs and soaks. And she had this little self-weaving kit, or self-care kit that she packaged up with a starter coil for some weaving and a little bit of raffia to keep weaving and a range of sort of essential oils. And so when I was 12, my mum was working for ASIS, an Aboriginal nursing home, essentially in East Brunswick, and they had a daycare program where they'd look after the elders could come for a day um, and do activities. And one afternoon I was there and they were doing some weaving. So these elders taught me how to weave and I sort of forgot about it and forgot how to do it and probably before going into the hub I had always wanted to relearn how to do it and whenever there was a workshop I'd jump on it and there was another lady called Donna Blackwell and she does a it's more of a rectangle shaped weave so I hadn't previously learned that so I learned that technique through her but I always wanted to really learn how to do the circle coils again because that was what I originally had learned and forgotten how to do so yeah I ordered this kit and started weaving in the hub and just sit outside in the sun or on the grass and weave and some of the people would just start asking questions what are you making what are you doing and stuff and then um I reached out to this other lady called Tegan Murdoch so she's based in Sydney and she's a wonderful weaver and she does lots of workshops and she does zoom workshops and wine and weave and classes and things like that so I reached out to her and I'm like you know sis I really want to learn how to do the starter coils I've forgotten and um, so she sent me through a link to watch some of her instructional videos so I was watching them and doing it and then one of the staff members of the footy club come up to me and she's like I really want to get something made by you so we can remember our time in the hub so I made that for her and then one of the other little girls um so Frankie Melksham so um, Jake Melchon's daughter, she's like, tried to steal the basket from this little girl. <laughs> and so then I made one for Frankie and then all the little girls in the hub were like, I want one too. So oh. I was just started making these little baskets for all the little girls. And, um, and then um, Kathleen come back to me and was like, it's my mum's birthday. I want something special for her. Can you make something? So that was when I made my first flower pot. So that was for a birthday present. And then, yeah, it's just sort of naturally progressed. So I started flooding my own personal Instagram with lots of weaving and People are probably going to get bored of this really quickly. So I sort of jumped on and made another account just for, to put on there. And again, so being of Yorta Yorta Nations, um, you know, we lost a lot of our language through colonisation, but we've been really fortunate that there is a dictionary available with limited words in there. So, and I've always wanted to relearn language or learn language. And when I was 19, I had one uh, Yorta Yorta word that I knew and I got it tattooed on my arm, which is Kalmunya which means beautiful, sweet, nice, honest and good. So, yeah, that was what I got tattooed on me and that was the only word I knew. And since then um, I was able to sort of access the copy of the dictionary because I don't actually publish it anymore. But there's an app, a beautiful app now that you can look up words and they'll have people from the Yorta Yorta clan 
um, speaking the words as well. So, yeah. yeah so What's the app called, Sam? It's just a Yorta Yorta language app. Beautiful. So, yeah, and I thought, you know, I really wanted to learn language because Neville has a lot of his Noongar language that kids use and speak and stuff. So it's really nice that they can have both sides of their culture. And, um, yeah, I've just been sort of trying to learn language and tie language to pieces that I do or the bigger pieces that I do um, and yeah Wanala Weavings is the business name that I come up with and Wanala is an uh, yorta yorta word so it means season so that's really beautiful being able to connect back to your culture like that and yeah and yeah I had a beautiful experience not that long Sorry. ago where I was able to, I had an order of five baskets and you know I was able to go back home on country and was staying at my uncle's house and actually had the opportunity to weave on country for the first time because yeah I was sort of being to Queensland and done it and was doing it in Adelaide when we went to Adelaide and Melbourne so yeah it was the first time I'd been able to go back home on country to do it so it was really special. How important is that for you to use this work to reconnect? Yeah I think it is really important and you know again just by having that platform of social media and the website and stuff like that and getting more language out there like I said it's been lost for a long time or forgotten so there's no elder in the community that can speak fluent language so yeah it's been nice to just to reintroduce some words and be part of that revival and since then I've seen lots of sort of businesses have popped up with new Aboriginal businesses popped up with some words that I've come up with and put on there or found and connected back to some artworks yeah, it's been really nice is that something you envisage teaching your daughter to do I have attempted to teach the kids how to weave I don't have the patience <laughs> <laughs> I am a perfectionist and then they get a bit wonky and yeah, they're keen to learn it drives me nuts every piece is unique yeah <laughs> though um took up more than I could chew I guess the saying is um with my Christmas ball balls, so they were really time intensive. So I had sort of committed myself to making 10 packs and that was it. And I ended up only getting to seven by the time I had to put them up for sale. But, you know, they would take hours to do. So I had to teach Nev how to weave. So he doesn't know how to start, but he'd sort of do the middle bit for me and then and then I'd finish them all off. So that saved some time. That's quite sweet to do that together. And their Christmas bubbles were amazing. I bought two packs of them. Yeah, so they were really time intensive. So they took a week to make a pack. And wow. So, yeah, it was like, yeah, Nev, I need some help here. So we're just sitting on the couch watching TV, weaving together. Nothing else in the house got done that week. But. <laughs> really, it is a really intricate skill to have and to develop. And where do you see yourself taking that or this business in general? Well, actually, there's a beautiful group called Nara Millie and um, it's a – First Nations business enterprise. So they, yeah, if you're wanting, to, if you're a First Nations person wanting to start a business, you can reach out to them, and they'll put you in touch with accountants, social media people, website designers, and lawyers and accountants and stuff like that. So I've reached out with them, and yeah, starting to do that process, yeah, seeing where this could go. Getting a lot of pressure too from friends. They're like, you should put your stuff at, for sale at the Koori Heritage Trust. And I've spoken to them about it and they're keen to do it. It's just, I just don't have time at the moment to get enough stock to happen. Because, yeah, it's only me doing it. When so. you do something that is so intricate and so time consuming. Yeah. You know, looking at Tegan, she's been able to move on to full-time weaving workshops and stuff like that, which has been amazing for her So and her space. So you never know what's going to happen, but... You know, at the meantime, I'm just doing piece by piece as they come in and, you know, I've sold some pieces to 
places in America and all over Australia. Oh. So we're getting lots of orders from the Northern Territory at the moment, which has been nice. Do you find it is quite a cathartic process itself? We spoke earlier about anxiety and I can imagine that doing the weaving could be quite relaxing and a good hands-on project to distract the mind. Yeah, I just think it brings you into the present. So you're focusing on what's in your hands and what you're doing and what you're creating as opposed to what's going on around you. We've spoken a little bit, I suppose, about footy and you did mention that you don't pay that much attention to the footy, but we have talked in the past about how you do pay attention to football media. Could you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, I guess um, that I just think that you know, football media and media in general has an unconscious racial bias towards Indigenous people or people of colour you know, it's become a running joke with Neville and I when it comes around to Indigenous Round. It's like, oh, look, how many posts are you going to feature in this week and interviews and stuff like that. I just think there's – I get that, you know, the list is full of so many players, but, you know, this, from my experience, is that, you know, the clubs aren't always presenting their Indigenous players fairly or giving them the same opportunities as the other players in that space except for, I guess, yeah, um, Indigenous rounds. So. And I think you mentioned too that sometimes they can be sort of misidentified yeah. in the media. Yeah, that's happened to Nev a couple of times. So he's done sort of articles for various newspapers and things like that. And again, because he's probably they're not getting recognised or getting that social media time as much, so their faces aren't getting recognised, there's been articles where they've used Jay Kennedy Harris's photo as Neville, previous Melbourne Indigenous player. And again, recently there was an article, I think it was around the hub time or Indigenous round, and they used um, Jeff Garlett's image instead of Neville's image. And, you know, that annoys me. That's really not good enough. No. And not good enough at all. No. Yeah. <laughs> and these are just like instances that I can give examples of but I'm sure there's plenty of others that have experienced the same and yeah it just grinds my gears and does it make you feel like you could be better supported and Nev could be better supported look I I keep having the conversation with Nev about it and um you know from our club perspective the I think they mean well but then sometimes they just need a reminder or a tap on the shoulder to say hey look it's NAIDOC week, are you going to do a post or is it, sorry, it's sorry day coming up, are you going to do a post to acknowledge that? So, yeah, I just sort of need that reminder. Sam, before we sign off, could you tell us a little bit about what's coming up for you, if you have any goals for the future as a family or as an individual? No, not really. Even Neville and I aren't really goal-orientated. We're very go with the flow. But, you know, Nev's probably a bit more conscious that it's the end of his contract and he's getting a bit older now, so he's sort of making plans in place and, you know, he needs to transition out of the game. Yeah, so, again, since being back from the hub, I'm back at work, transitioning jobs at the moment, thankfully, and about to move into sort of full-time education support work, which I'm really excited about. Well, then, thank you. Thank, thank you for you. sharing your whole story and being um, so open and honest with us and spending your time with us and the earrings as well that we'll um, yeah, we're both share some feeling, information we're about. We're both feeling very fabulous yeah. today now. <laughs> <laughs> they, they are beautiful and congratulations on your new business and thank um, you. all the best for the future. We'll be supporting you and thank you so much for your time, Sam. I really love your perspective. I think it's just, it's so you and I'm so excited for other people to get to hear it. Thank you. 
Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Significant Others podcast. We really appreciate your support. And as always, if there's anyone you would like to hear from, please feel free to send us a message on Instagram at the Significant Others podcast. 